Hi everyone, this is Steve Hargadon. It's Thursday, June 4th, and welcome to the Future of Education. We're glad you're here tonight. Our guests, our special guests are Maya and Tom Frost. We're going to talk about Maya's new book, The New Global Student. We want to give thanks to KnowledgeWorks Foundation, our gracious host for the Future of Education interview series, and to Illuminate for providing the venue and supporting us in using the Illuminate Room. I want to make you aware of uh, three quick things. Uh, we are coming up on NECC, which is a great fun event for those of us in the K-12 arena. And the Saturday before NECC is EduBloggerCon. It's an all-day unconference around EdTech. A lot of fun. It's free. And it's uh, a great day to meet people. If you're going to be in Washington, D.C. at that time, we encourage you to sign up or just come. We're also going to have a fair amount of virtual activity around NECC. That will take place at NECCUnplugged.com. Uh, anybody who's at NECC who would like to present can do so at NECC Unplugged. Again, it's an unconference environment. You have to sign up on the wiki. but. If you've always wanted to present NECC, now's your chance. And I want to make you aware of LearnCentral.org. Uh, it's a new social network for education that I'm, uh, as part of my paid job for Illuminate, has Illuminate baked into it, a great environment for doing these kinds of things. If this is your first time in Illuminate, I want to give you a quick introduction. Uh, up at the top of the screen, you'll see a red X and a green check. That's one way of our getting participant feedback. If you want to go ahead and click on the green check right now, we'll know that you can hear me. So it's just the top row. There you go. Green check. I won't ask if anybody can't hear me. That would be funny. Um, it looks like Maya, you or Tom clicked the top row green checker X in the participant box. That cleared all the responses, but that's okay. We'll do another test by having people click on the smiley face down at the bottom of the participant window. That's another way in which you can participate. You can clap using the clapping hand. You can express confusion with the confused face or disapproval with the thumbs down. I've read enough of Maya's book that we don't need any disapproval tonight. I know that's not going to be a good thing. There is a way to raise your hand if you want to speak. You can do that by clicking on the hand with the green arrow up. I'm going to do that, and you'll see a little number goes up next to me. That's a way of saying I want to talk. Um, messages can be placed in the chat. You can send messages to any other participant privately, or the default is to this room. Just know that any private messages are seen by me and Maya and Tom because we're moderators. Um, if you are so inclined, go up to View Layouts and click on Wide Layout. I think you'll find that's a better layout for watching the session tonight. Okay, now I'm going to give you a double chance to participate. I'm giving you permissions to modify this whiteboard. You'll see a map of the world. If you click on the little wand with the red star at the end, and then click on the map, you can indicate where you are right now. So I just clicked in California for outside of Sacramento. Looks like we're mostly in the U.S. Looks like we have someone from France. If you want to shout out where you're coming in from, you're certainly welcome to do so in the chat. Let us know the time and the temperature. If we have somebody from Russia here, I'm going to be thrilled. I don't know if that's a, an accurate placement, but 
It's very fun. Germany. Great, well, we're certainly glad you're here spending some of your time with us. This is being recorded. The links to the recording will be placed on the event page. So certainly please do let others know once we're done if you want to send them to the recording. Okay, I'm going to move on. I'm going to take away your map privileges. It's our pleasure tonight to have Maya and Tom on the show. Maya's new book is called The New Global Student. And in 2005, Maya and Tom sold everything and left their suburban American lifestyle behind in order to have an adventure abroad. The tricky part was they needed to usher their four teenage daughters through high school into college and beyond in non-traditional ways. This is the press release material. We're going to drill past that. It also says, Maya's written a book to help other families take advantage of the lessons they learned and the loopholes they discovered. We're hoping, Maya and Tom, that uh, you can also help those of, who are in the room who are educators understand what the experience meant and what it possibly means for the future of education. So welcome, both of you. Thank you. We're happy to be here. Tom, I'm really glad that you were able to join us as well. Uh, yes, thanks for having us. Really appreciate it. Maya will do most of the talking because, well, she usually does. <laughs> and because you gave her the better mic. I'm such a gentleman. He is, it's true. <laughs> okay, so my first question, Maya, is you have a quote on the cover of the book, Tremendous Insight, Essential Reading for Any Family Yearning to Step Off the Treadmill and Plunge into the World, Daniel Pink. Okay, did Dan Pink really read your book? He did really read the book, and actually, because he has three kids, including a, a teenage daughter, and his kids actually go to an IB school, he was very interested in reading it. And um, of course, he's done a fair amount of travel himself, and so he's curious about what it would be like to take a family abroad for an extended stay. So he's a big fan, and I, I'm very grateful that he actually did read the book and, and wrote such a nice blurb for it. Well, there are a lot of nice blurbs in this book. And I think what's really interesting to me is having uh, four children and having homeschooled a few of them uh, at different times, and also having been a foreign exchange student when I was in high school, there was a lot of material in the book that I really uh, connected with. So why don't you start by just kind of telling us the story. Um, g give us a sense of, of what the book is about and what actually happened in your lives. Well, for us, the seed of the idea of going abroad and spending time abroad with our family had been planted early on because my husband had been an exchange student in high school to India back before email. So that meant that a year in India was really a year in India with very little contact. And his three siblings had spent a year abroad in high school as well. And so we just sort of, you know, the kids grew up expecting that someday they might do that. And um, as they got older, uh, we wanted to give them more opportunities to have those kinds of experiences. So we did go on a sabbatical to India and Nepal uh, when they were between the ages of 7 and 11 and spent two months in India visiting Tom's former home, uh, host families and their, their grown kids. And, um, and then we just had such a wonderful time. It was just a, a remarkable period that we sort of 
still gauge our lives in terms of before India and after India. And that really inspired us to think about how we might do that a little bit later. So I, I really um, want you to tell us, go ahead. A lot of people are, are wondering, you know, well, okay, so maybe you have this idea, but now you're living in suburbia and your kids are in high school and they've got friends and activities, so how do you make a big break? And for us, it really was sort of an epiphany because uh, once our oldest daughter had returned from her exchange and she had to sort of figure out what to do during her senior year, she, at that point, was really excited about learning, not so excited about high school. She felt like she had a lot of different interests than her peers, which is very common for exchange students coming back. And so she started to, uh, she enrolled in a dual enrollment program her senior year, which allowed her to take uh, classes at the local community college and finish high school and get some great co uh, credits at the same time. And, and once we saw how easily and successfully she was able to transition, uh, she transferred to uh, university at 18 as a junior, it started to open our eyes to some other possibilities and made us realize we didn't actually have to stay there anymore. And, and then once there were the technology tools available to allow us to make our business virtual, it seemed like you know everything sort of came together at the right moment for us. Okay, so tell us what you did, what year was it, and what did you actually do? You, you I'm obviously have read good portions of the book, but uh, tell us the, the, the you know the, the gist of actually taking off. Well, one of the biggest things that uh, turned out to be more difficult than we anticipated, in fact, the only thing that turned out to be more difficult than we anticipated was dealing with the naysayers. And, um, and that came in all different forms. Of course, the, uh, the, uh, our friends and family were concerned about how we were going to get our kids to finish high school and get into college from abroad. Um, their teachers were concerned. They didn't know anyone who had done anything similar. And, you know, were very uh, reluctant to cheer us on too much because they were worried. Even though our kids were good students and they just, you know, had were pretty motivated, but they just weren't quite sure how we were going to pull it off. And you know, in most cases, families are reluctant to to uh, switch schools and and send their kids across town to a different high school during that period of time. And so to yank them all out and go to a different country and a different language and culture seemed like a huge jump. But we decided to do it, and within six weeks, we sold everything, our cars, furniture, everything, down to two bags each. And uh, Tom and I and two of the girls went down to Mexico. That was our sort of starter country, and uh, we spent 11 months there. And um, after a couple of months there, or during that period of time, our oldest daughter was 19, and she was a senior in college. Um, in Canada, and our third daughter had just started her own exchange in Brazil. So we were sort of scattered around, but um, we were all sort of having our own adventures. And it was a fantastic year, and at the end of it, we asked our youngest daughter uh, what she wanted to do next, and she had the most school ahead of her. And she said, well, let's try Argentina. And we picked up again and moved to Buenos Aires, and we've been there for the last three years. Okay, so you mentioned that one of the hardest parts was dealing with the naysayers. And I'll say that from our homeschooling experience, that we certainly have heard a lot of the same things. What are some of the things that people say when you do something this bold? Well, there are two sort of areas of concern. One is safety. 
Um, I think especially because we had four daughters, they, you know, they thought we were maybe being irresponsible and taking some risks with them by taking them abroad. And of course, this is coming mostly from people who've never been abroad and have a fear about that. Um, so we didn't take those too seriously because we'd spent time abroad before and we, we didn't have that fear. Um, but we were more concerned by the comments regarding our kids' education and, you know, the questions about, you know, well, how will they ever get into college and how are you going to handle all of that and uh, are they even going to be able to take the SAT and what about not being able to take AP classes and, and you know, you don't know what you're doing and you might be screwing up your kids' education forever. So uh, we, we did take that part more seriously. Well, and, and I get the sense from uh, the way you describe it in the book that some of this is actually um, an emotional response that maybe has less to do with what you're doing than with people's own circumstances. It's very true, and, and I wish we had understood that more clearly in the beginning. Um, but we took a lot of the initial sort of resistance to our move personally, when really we ultimately came to understand that it was more about people's individual feelings about things. So for example, if, if you know, you've got a group of friends who are, who are parents and they're working as volunteers at a high school that, and they're very dedicated to it, and then you suddenly say you're going to yank your three daughters out of that same high school, well, it's, they're going to feel rejected, they're going to feel judged, they're going to feel like, well, isn't this high school good enough? Are we doing something wrong? And you know, so a lot of their resistance is really more about the questions they have for themselves. And all the way through, um, as we did uh, college and high school differently for the girls, there were all kinds of questions, you know, especially when they graduated early at 19, people were saying, well, gosh, you know, I, I, I hope, you know, they got a good experience out of that. Gee, did they miss out on the college experience, et cetera, et cetera. But really, they were questioning in their heads, wow, I, it, should my kid be graduating at 19? Should I be saving thousands of dollars on tuition? Uh, you know, and that it really brings up a lot of questions that not everyone wants to face. Well, so it occurred to me that this, well, well this was very, uh, strongly felt because of the, the uh, sort of the um, significant move that you made, that this is in fact maybe not that different than the kinds of struggles we're going to go through with regard to education as a whole as it becomes more and more personalized and it's less and less about following a known track. H have you thought that maybe some of the experiences that you've had in this regard uh, will help you as you talk to educators just on understanding what the future will look like as students take non-traditional paths to their lives? Oh, absolutely. You know, I think that um, this was such an eye-opener for us and really gave us an opportunity to see, uh, partly because we had four kids and they each did it differently, um, how many different ways there are to do it. And uh, we kept meeting, of course, lots of other students as we were living abroad who were on their way and, and, and doing things around the world in all different kinds of fields. And we started to understand that there were all different kinds of ways to get a personalized education and that sticking to the one-size-fits-all model just doesn't work, nor does the old, what I call the four-by-four plan, which is four years of high school followed by four years of college. That 
is a traditional model that has worked, but now, especially when we're questioning, you know, when we're looking at the dropout rate, when we're looking at the cost of college and the uh, very low rate of students graduating from college within six years even, um, we have to start questioning what we've been doing and look at how we can improve both the, the rate at which kids are able to complete high school and, and on to college, but also what they're getting from that, what kind of relevant experience, what kind of learning, and how can we make it personalized so that they're exhilarated by it. Okay, so again, I'm very curious to know in the audience how many of you are professional educators or in the education field. And if you are, would you click on the green check? Because I'm anxious to hear your responses to mine. We'll take a break in a minute and start taking some questions. But I wanted Maya to see as well the people in the room and uh, who are professionally involved in education. So one of the themes for me in the book was the, the, the difference between an educational system that can feel like a game or can feel like a set of standard things like you said, the 4 by 4 versus authentic learning. And does it really get down to that, that, these, that, you, that you were looking at an authentic learning experience for your girls rather than playing the game? Um, and you, I think you call it development versus education. And do you want to maybe jump off from that platform a little? Sure. I think that when when Tom and I were first considering this this step, uh, one of the things that we recognized, and and I want to be clear that our kids had attended public schools all the way through, and we've been very happy with all of them. In fact, they've attended over nine public schools, I think, altogether, and we've been happy all the way through. Um, so it wasn't so much that we were, you know, rebelling against the, the public school system. It's just that we felt as parents a sense of responsibility to teach our kids some of the skills that um, we couldn't expect that they would learn at school. So, uh, and some of them include uh, the uh, the very same skills that we felt that they would gain by spending time abroad: flexibility, uh, foreign language fluency. Um, a sense of curiosity about the world, a sense of wonder about the world, uh, not to mention a lot of other skills in, ter in terms of just being able to be confident and, and competent in new settings. Uh, because when we look ahead at the future, we've, that's what the only thing we can count on is that things are going to be uncomfortable and that our kids are going to be pushed out of their comfort zone. They're going to be in work settings and, and live in communities that don't look the way they do now necessarily. And we wanted our kids to have what I call full tilt flexibility. They could go anywhere. They could live anywhere. They could thrive anywhere. And, um, and that was really our, our goal. And I think that most parents should have that goal as well, that they should be preparing their kids to thrive wherever they choose to live. OK, I want to open up to some questions. Uh, I still have more questions, but I think that we have a, a nice audience here, and I'm sure they're going to want to ask some things. So uh, my, this paragraph uh, really uh, stopped me in my tracks. Uh, but we couldn't shake the feeling there was something more vibrant out there for us. The richness of life isn't recognized in a rush-rush world. And though we were personally committed to keeping things as simple as possible, we were immersed in a culture in which being swamped was a sign of success and being exhausted counted as a personal virtue. Perhaps we were just too lazy to run on that treadmill, but we prefer to think that we simply saw how unnecessarily urgent it all was. Can you 
do you have a vision? Do you and Tom now have something of a vision of how a family that's not in a position to do what you've done could still feel the same kind of relief and authentic learning um, by staying at home? Uh, well, we sort of had a double advantage because we didn't just take our kids abroad um, and we didn't choose to stay at home. We actually uh, you know, had our kids go abroad on their own through the exchange program. And I think that that's an option that's available to virtually any family and especially any family considering sending their kid to college because there are some very, you know, some outstanding and very affordable exchange programs out there that, um, you know, can cost less to send your kid abroad for a year than it does to send them to soccer camp and buy shoes and, you know, pay for a prom dress and car insurance. So um, I, I don't think that it's a matter of money. It's more a matter of um, understanding the value of that experience and overcoming the fear. So very much uh, taking a proactive approach looking for ways to do these things that you felt were so engaging. And again, having been an exchange student in Brazil for a year when I was in high school, um, certainly a huge, huge fan of it. Okay, so Marianne asked the question, what changes would you like to see in the U.S. educational system to mirror what you've learned? Well, the wonderful thing is that there are already some really great options in place, but they're not fully supported. They're not available everywhere. For example, I think dual enrollment is a fantastic option for our high schools. And um, I think that you know a lot of students who are not taking advantage of dual enrollment now, either because it's not the thing to do in their school or it's not available in their school, are really missing out and could really move forward if they had that option. Um, I'd like to see that become much more common. Um, and I also think that there should be more room for those kids who do choose to go abroad, whether it's for a year or a half year or whatever, um, because it, it's, you know, we were really fortunate because we worked with our high school counselor and made sure that, you know, everyone knew what was going on and what was expected when they came back. But there are a lot of schools, we've heard a lot of stories of uh, students who came back after their year abroad, for example, and their, you know, the, uh, uh, administration made them jump through a lot of hoops and spend extra time. So I think it's key that this type of activity of going abroad is really supported and understood by high schools because it's um, so valuable and it really is an incredible way to give kids exactly the kind of global skills they're going to need to thrive. So it's interesting. My reaction is uh, that you've tied the two together. The, the global piece and the sort of stepping off of the um, treadmill, but it but it seems like maybe there are two, sort of two possible separate lessons there. You know, one of which is looking at your children, their individual circumstances, and being willing to be a little bold and brave, and the other is just the great value of the global. Is that a fair statement? Do you think? Yeah. No, I think that that's exactly true. Okay, so I'd like to ask Tom a question. If any of you in the audience are interested in asking a question, please leave it in the chat or feel free to raise your hand by clicking on the hand with the green up arrow and I'll give you the microphone and you can ask. Tom, can you tell us the ages of the girls at the time that you left? And then there's a part in the book where you kind of describe where their lives are now. Are you willing to go through that as well? Uh, sure. Um, 
gosh, age of the kids. It changes every year. It's always hard to remember what it is. But I think it was 15, 16, 18, and 19. So the 15-year-old came with us to Mexico. The 16-year-old was on her exchange to Brazil. The 18-year-old had just come back from Brazil, and, in, and she had graduated a year early, so she came to Mexico with us, and the 19-year-old was at college. Um, and so now, as of today, the oldest one just got her master's in public health uh, last week, and she works here in New York, and she is 23, and the uh, second one is 21. She graduated from college last December, and she's working in Buenos Aires. The uh, number three daughter is uh, working for Norwegian Cruise Lines, and she graduated also in December at the age of 19. And the youngest one is doing an independent study in uh, Argentina this summer, and she will graduate from college um, this December, and I believe she will just be turning 19. Do you find, Tom, that it changes how people respond to what you've done to hear of the successes of your girls? Um, I, that's a hard question because everybody design or everybody determines what success is a little bit differently, and um, I think the thing that was most puzzling to me was that um, when when kids are in elementary school and they skip a grade or they skip you know two grades sometimes people say wow that's really amazing must be a really smart kid and it follows you all the way through high school and yet my kids were able to skip you know a, a couple of years actually a year in uh, high school and a year in college because of the way we did things and all of them graduated um, if not with honors very very close with honors from college and uh, three of three of the four will have BSs one will have a one has a BA. Um, and yet, no, not not really, because it's it's sort of it's sort of beyond the norm. And I, I and it's um, you, Steve. You might feel you might have felt the same way when you came back from Brazil and you told everybody about this amazing experience you had, and you kind of get that that look, which is uh, which is uh, disbelief. People just really can't comprehend it. So I guess the answer is no. There isn't really any. I don't I don't really think that. Um, people think the kids are anything special, and in fact, the kids really downplay it a lot because um, they never tell anybody their ages because people will think that, and I guess they have been told they're geniuses, and they are far from geniuses, and will always say they're not geniuses. Well, I think it may be just the fact that they actually turned out okay. Um, uh, that, that is. Um, you know, maybe part of the difficulty of this message, which is uh, if we sort of feel that public education is uh, absolutely necessary to become uh, a citizen, then your story becomes sort of an awkward one for us. Um, and, and we can drill down on that with any questions. There are some questions in the chat, and I want to uh, bring them up. Um, Angelus asks, 
uh, and maybe Mai, this is good for you to get back on, on the mic here. Did you find any open educational resources in any subject and in most universities? And do you know what that means? Yes, I know what it means. But um, well, they, they sort of did it differently. You have to remember, because we were abroad for you know a lot of the time, uh, we kind of were limited by what you know, we really wanted to do as much as we could locally. Uh, that was important. So for example, uh, although uh, our second daughter took classes online when she was living with us in Mexico, she, um, she actually took classes online from a couple of different institutions. She ended up going to six universities in four countries in three languages and graduating in two years. And um, she was on a roll in a kind of very specific way, but it wasn't about you know, any sort of open sh uh, courseware or anything like that. For her, it was she needed to be there, be fully immersed, be absorbing the language, and be in the culture. Um, and so she jumped around a lot. And that was, that was her particular path. Um, but the third daughter, she actually took both online courses in Argentina. And she also, uh, at the same time, was taking classes at a local university in Argentina in Spanish, some of them, and some in English. And um, she wanted to have that experience of you know being immersed, having American friends who were in the English classes that were who all those students were studying Spanish, and she wanted to have Argentine friends in the Spanish-speaking classes. So a lot of it was more experiential, and they, although they all spent some time online and, and you know took advantage of a lot of different resources, they really wanted to dig in where they were, and and I think that's really what gave them the advantage. Well, we've got a lot of great questions coming up, uh, so let's go through these quickly. Maria asks, any advice for younger children, 10 to 14, ready for advanced work in some areas? Well, yes, and I, I think that any parent who's done homeschooling is aware that there are a lot of great options out there, um, whether they're online, whether there are courses available in different formats in your community. Uh, we actually used some tutors when we were living abroad, which was fantastic for the girls. Um, they each had individual tutors, and, and that was very affordable for us there. We had, it, fortunately, it turns out that in Buenos Aires, there are a lot of American expats and expats from around the world who are educators who are there on sabbatical. And, um, and they want nothing more than a wonderful experience to be a mentor to a really motivated young person who wants to learn about a particular area of interest that they're passionate about. So we took full advantage of that. Um, I, I just think there are a lot of ways for younger kids to get a chance to go abroad. There's a whole chapter on my, in my book about family sabbaticals and how valuable that can be. Um, but really, there, it's really about following the interests of the kids and allowing them to kind of pursue them and um, without necessarily slotting them into an advanced, rigorous program, but kind of letting them play around with what they want to do. Uh, Lauren asks, would you raise your kids entirely on, global on the global education model from the beginning? You mean would we have moved abroad when they were younger? I guess in retrospect, would you have felt comfortable or felt it would have been valuable to do it from a much earlier age? Uh, yeah, uh, you know, it's hard to say I'd go back and change things because it just turned out so beautifully for all of them and they all really appreciate, you know, we had a, a small American town that they lived in when they were kids and we worked five blocks away and so they had that sort of literally growing up on Main Street kind of experience and that's very precious to them. So it's hard for me to say that I, you know, wish we would have left the U.S. earlier. Um, it's. 
I'm just happy with the way it turned out. Okay, I promise you, I'm, although I'm not going in an order, I think I've caught every question. But Tammy just got here and she asked the question that I know you addressed specifically in the book. She says, I've been listening for about 10 minutes. Are these folks independently wealthy or do they have a job that just allows this kind of travel? That should give you a great oh, I, I uh, love springboard. This question. I love this question because uh, it's, the first, it's the first assumption people make about us is, well, you must be rich. But here's the reality. Um, we're definitely not wealthy. We, our income was firmly planted in the five figures together. Uh, for years before we sold our house, we did not have an expensive house. It was just a normal little four-bedroom ranch in a subdivision. Um, so it wasn't like we made millions on our house or anything like that. Um, we have just been very frugal. And the reality is that when we spent time in Mexico and when we spent time in Argentina, we saved so much on our month expenses compared to what we had been living in. And we had a pretty frugal lifestyle before in the States. But we saved so much that we were able to pay for college as we went along. So really, one of the reasons we went abroad, and, um, and, and I know this sounds unbelievable, what it was to, to pay for college, because it turned out that we could save enough money and have a great lifestyle and spend so much more time with our kids by living abroad. And we, did have, we, we worked virtually. Um, my husband has a business that uh, sells uh, jewelry that's imported from Asia. Um, but really, we're not talking about a huge amount of money here, and the vast majority of families are not making any more than we did and are in no better shape than, I mean, are no worse shape than we are to have been able to do this. And I think you also point out in the book that there are actually a fair number of decent opportunities for educators abroad. That's true. There are. And, um, you know, everywhere we go, of course, we meet people who are working at an international school or working at a Montessori school or um, somehow finding ways to teach. And um, expats in general tend to be very creative people. Um, there was a study actually that came out recently that said that they're, they're creative to begin with and in some cases, but they also become more creative by the virtue of the fact of living abroad because, you know, you have to be so much more adaptable and figure out a way to make things work on a daily basis. So um, there are all kinds of opportunities abroad. And a lot of the expats we know work virtually. Some of them are starting new businesses wherever they happen to land. Um, and people are figuring out ways to do it and, um, and live very, very uh, fulfilling lives. Marianne asks, what role did career and technical courses play in your daughter's education abroad? Um, very little. Actually, uh, they, in terms of technical courses, well, they're each a little bit different in terms of their interests. Um, more science-oriented, for example, for the oldest and the youngest, less so for the middle two. Um, but in terms of technical courses, anything about computers, really nothing. They're completely self-taught. Um, I think they each took one required computer course of some kind in high school or online. But um, all of the tools that they know and the skills that they've learned, they've learned in the process of um, living abroad, being online, communicating with their friends, doing research about jobs abroad, all of that has been sort of um, you know, on their own. So I'm going to read four questions that I think uh, roughly address a similar area. And it has to do with the impact for your children of the experience. Uh, Randy, at, and I'll read them, in, but I have to read all four. Randy asks, were there any emotional maturity problems? Uh, Linda said, 
How did they feel about their experiences? Were they valuable and engaging? Uh, Julie asks, who were your 15-year-old friends while you were in Mexico? And Shell says, did different customs and appropriate behavior for teenagers pose any questions or problems for your children? So could you talk a little bit about the sort of social, emotional experiences the girls had? Sure, and, and again, these are each different, but I'll, I'll kind of go through them uh, one by one, especially um, our first, when we moved to Mexico, we had our second daughter with us who had just graduated early from high school, and she was still kind of adjusting from the return uh, from her year in Brazil. So we basically, she went from Brazil to the States for a few weeks, and then we moved to Mexico. And for her, she was all excited to go to Mexico because she would realized very quickly that she wasn't that interested in being uh, back in high school. And so she was ready for another adventure, which is often the case for students who go abroad. Um, but then once she got to Mexico, reality hit because her younger sister was going to high school and was in school all day. And she, on the other hand, was taking courses online and was going, oh, wait a second, I don't have any friends. And that was a rude awakening. But it turned out that she met up with a fantastic group of exchange students from around the world who were her age. And she connected with them instantly and just had just a fantastic time there. In fact, she she turned 18 there. She just she had a, a uh, Mexican boyfriend for a while. She had a very mixed group of friends from Europe and all over the place, and um, she just was thriving eventually. But that's the thing you have to realize is that it's there's a little bit of uh, a bumpiness to the transitions, and you know the thing is if you've got teenage daughters, you know that there's bumpiness all along the way anyway. But it is especially pronounced if you're moving abroad and having to start from zero and make new friends. But they all eventually really thrived and found developed great friendships with uh, with students wherever they were. Maya, there's a there's a request that you actually let us know which girl you're talking about when you talk about them. And in the picture, the four are there. Are they in age order? Yes. Um, left is the youngest. To toward right is the oldest. So if you're looking at the picture, I'm talking about. Uh, the, the one with the darker hair, the, the third one in, um, that's Tara. She is the one who came back from Brazil and met friends in Mexico and ended up having a great time, even though she had some concerns in the originally. originally. Um, the second daughter in, Teal, uh, she had just come, no, she had the hardest experience, because picture this, she went on her exchange to Brazil. We moved while she was on her exchange. So rather than anticipating all year long this fantastic, triumphant return and welcome, she didn't have a home to go to. And so she came and joined us in um, Mexico for the last two weeks that we were there. She spent a couple of weeks visiting her friends, reuniting with her friends in the States, and then boom, it was down to Argentina. And she sort of had the same experience in that Talia, the younger one, the first one in the, in the row, had uh, a school experience, and she didn't because she was finishing high school online. But um, And she writes very, very openly in the book about how hard that was at times for her to not have a group of friends that was consistent. She had a lot of friends. She had a lot of people she could go out and do things with because she had the Americans she knew at the local university who were there to study Spanish. And she had you know, Argentine friends. And her best friend was a girl, it was an Argentine Lebanese girl whose family had been evacuated during the war. And she and Teal sort of glommed onto each other as people who were not quite sure they wanted to be there but were dragged there anyway. Um, but they ended up just having a, a, a very good year. Well, I also think that you make the point that 
uh, like you said, there wouldn't. It's, this is. It's not like there aren't any bumps in the road. And certainly, as parents of four daughters, you probably dealt with things that parents of four daughters deal with, just in different cultures. Well, absolutely, and and um, you know, if you've ever had the experience of having a teenage daughter who's upset about a friendship you know, that's changing or something like that. I can tell you we have been through that on steroids um, because there's nothing more tumultuous than going abroad for a year and coming back and having your your world change while you were away. And then, you, of course, you've changed dramatically while you're away as well. And then to add another layer of living abroad with your family and having to recreate, you know, really your identity and your friendships and all of that. Um, Talk about your full tilt flexibility. <laughs> I mean, um, you know, it was it was challenging. There's no doubt about it. And yet, every one of our daughters will say that they are so very grateful for that experience. It taught them so much about themselves and about what they're capable of. And this made everything else seem so easy. They thought college was a piece of cake compared to what they went through um, as exchange students and living abroad. So I do promise. I I think I'm catching all the questions. There were three that related to specifically sort of how the lessons that you might have learned that would apply toward a more traditional education. Marianne asked, what strategies can you offer to help educators integrate global awareness? Deb said, how can we try to acclimate this type of engagement or global experience within our own classrooms? And then Cheryl asked a fascinating question. What lessons can you extrapolate that can be used for children from underprivileged areas or those that come from different cultural backgrounds? So um, are there ways, maybe we deal with the first two first, are there ways in which you feel like some of the things that you've learned could help make a difference for students who don't have this opportunity with regard to global awareness? Well, absolutely. And one of the things I write about in the book is that uh, we do have the IV program, and I do think that's an outstanding uh, way to help kids both think in, in, um, in sort of literally more global ways about the various subjects that they're studying and to be more um, aware of the differences and, and how history and culture and economics and politics all sort of weave together to create this, this um, fascinating you know, world that we're living in. I think that that's an outstanding program. I do think that um, in encouraging exchanges and, and I, I don't mean necessarily only students going abroad from the States, but also having exchange students come from other countries is extremely valuable. Um, and in, frankly, in a lot of places in the US, there are already a lot of diverse school settings. And we can learn from that and use what we have there. We have you know, opportunities for all kinds of language and cultural exchanges in, in, within one school, whether it's an elementary school or a high school. And I think that we're you know, really not necessarily taking advantage of the opportunities that we have already. OK, so I am intrigued by Cheryl's question. Is Are there lessons that can be extrapolated that can be used for children who are coming from underprivileged areas or come from different cultural backgrounds? And I'm, I'm wondering if she's thinking of some ways in which your experience helped you to see patterns or uh, things that could be done that we could be thinking about doing for students who are coming from different cultures, although they may live within our midst. I think that, you know, especially in a lot of inner city schools and um, schools in more impoverished areas, there is uh, a, a great deal of diversity, like I said already. And I think some of the greatest 
lessons that can be learned is to rather than you know throw all the kids in an ESL classroom who don't speak English as a native speaker, I think the um, what's it called the dual Spanish immersion or uh, program or the dual language immersion where that. You know, the kids are, are learning two languages at the same time and helping each other. Or any type of uh, system that will allow kids to teach each other, especially in the early grades, first, second, third grade. You know, we're so worried about our kids getting behind in reading. We've got all of these benchmarks to meet. But the reality is that though they might be slower originally in the first couple of years in terms of meeting certain reading goals, if they're allowed to really communicate with each other and teach each other their languages, and even, you know, I'm not talking about fluency, I'm talking about just being comfortable hearing other words and, and not freaking out when they hear another language, being okay with hearing it and trying to figure it out. That's an extremely powerful and valuable skill that kids can develop quite naturally by simply allowing other languages to be spoken and shared in the classroom. So this is your stage, and I'm not going to take away from it, but I want to propose an idea and see um, how you feel about it, and maybe you, could, you can run with it. Sal asks, were there certain areas where your children were not interested in, that your children were not interested in that left a gap in their education? And you've just described trying to find ways for those students who come from different backgrounds to be actively involved. I interviewed a man named Michael Wesch last week, and he, he quoted Neil Postman talking about the how sometimes the method or the, uh, someone will know this quote better than I do, um, the, the medium was more important than the message, that the, that the act of being interested in something and learning engagement then allowed for a richer educational experience for that individual for the rest of their lives. Is there a degree of that going on here, which is you weren't really in control, there were a lot of things out of your control, it wasn't the systematic education that we're used to, but because they were able to pursue their own interests and passions, that it made them more likely to be lifelong learners? You know, I cannot overemphasize how little control we had. and. Um, and we just ran with it because we had no other choice. I mean, they had to figure things out, and each place was different. Each circumstance was different. Their paths into and through college were different. They had to move forward based solely on their interest and their engagement. And they were completely immersed in their learning experience, their options, the choices that they made because they were making them themselves. They were not in any way controlled by anyone else. They had full freedom to go in whatever direction they wanted. And I think more than anything else, just having that freedom to pursue their interests and not necessarily have to spend time bringing up every area. For example, none of them would say they're good in math. Although the oldest one just got her master's in urban public health, which she had a BS at 19, it requires a lot of statistics. So it's not that she can't do math, but I think if she would have been in a classroom in high school, or especially in a situation that would have required her to take four years of math, I think that would have beaten her down to some degree. I think it would have taken away from her excitement about what she was really passionate about. And ultimately, she ended up doing something, and she has a very scientific mind. But she got to choose the way to use it. So I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here laughing a little. And Tom, I'm wondering if you are too. Because when I was on my exchange program in Brazil, 
Um, there were significant things that I missed in high school in the U.S. Uh, I never took a physics course. I didn't take it in Brazil. I never took it at home. And then I didn't take physics when I was in college. So was, the answer to Sal's question would be that there are there were significant gaps in my educational experience. But I'm going to guess that that's true for almost all students. And I think what I gained was so much more beneficial. Uh, Tom, how do you reply to that question about, you know, uh, did it leave gaps in the education of the girls? Well, define a gap. Right? It's there. The, if, if you're going by one school district's um, uh, determination of, of of what is required for that school district, then um, perhaps. But actually, I think we filled all of them through different classes if we had to take them online or or something like that. But um, it's funny, Maya brought up our oldest. Well, our youngest, who also would say that she's not good at math, had to take a financial accounting, and she hasn't had that much math, but she had to take a financial accounting class uh, this last semester at um, college, and she absolutely loved it, and she was really good at it. So um, I think I think what you said earlier about how this method gets kids excited about learning, so they'll be lifelong learners. Kind of, it it takes away the gaps at some point. I mean, just have excitement about learning is actually the most important thing. Okay, so Fred asked, uh, and I'm going to kind of bundle these together again. Fred asked, did their career paths include or likely include more international experiences? And did they, uh, uh, Eleonora? asked, did they learn in a virtual environment at all? And Fred asked, uh, again, to what degree did the girls rely on each other? Maya, anybody bundle those together? Sure. Well, um, in terms of, you know, continued interest in international learning and that type of thing, you know, it's interesting, but the oldest one, Tycho, like I said, was already in college when we moved to Mexico. And even though she'd spent a year in Chile, she didn't live abroad with the family. So I think that she was a, she's the one that's sort of most, uh, I guess, dug into the the American culture. And she has lived in New York for the last three years, absolutely loves New York, is thriving here, couldn't be happier. And um, and that's fantastic. And and although she travels, she just went to Morocco a couple of months ago for a trip, and you know that's very interesting to her. Um, I think in terms of her career, she's she's really happy to be in New York, which is really um, you know for her particular field of interest, the center of things. Uh, whereas the second daughter is living in Buenos Aires right now, and um, and and you know quit her job in Manhattan in order to go back to VA because she loved it so much and really missed it. And um, Teal, the third daughter, she has the most international job of all because she is working uh, as an, a multilingual events coordinator for Norwegian Cruise Lines. And so she literally lives on a ship four months of the year, then has six weeks off. She's got six weeks off right now in, in New York, and she's going back to Portland to visit some friends and family. And then in July, she begins her new four-month routine, uh, a route uh, through the Mediterranean. And she'll be going all through you know, a number of different countries, and she works in a very, very international staff. Uh, there are 650 people aboard her last 
uh, crew members aboard her last ship. She's the youngest one and only one of only a handful of Americans. So um, she has a very, very international sort of um, experience going on. And then the youngest one is, like I said, right now, she's in Argentina doing her independent study, most of which is being done in Spanish. And she'll graduate back up here in upstate New York in December. But I think she's very likely to head back to Argentina and perhaps consider getting a master's there. So Sal asked where you're currently living, and I think it's Buenos Aires, right? That's correct. And, and Fred asked, how often do you get together as a family now? <laughs> That's a funny question. Um, way more often than we ever thought possible. Um, right now, we're in New York for the promotion of the book. Tom and I are here for a month. Our oldest daughter lives here, the one that just finished her cruise is here. Uh, so we've been having a great time. We can get together for lunch or dinner every day. We're having a lot of fun here. And the other two girls are in um, Argentina right now having a great time together. And it's, it's surprising how much back and forth there is, even though when we, whenever we say goodbye, we're always kind of unsure when we're going to see each other next. It's always sooner than we think. So um, we've been very happy with the way that's turned out. So here's a question uh, that shifts away from the girls. How did you and your husband make friends and experience the cultures you were in? Oh my gosh, we have the most fantastic lifestyle in Buenos Aires. We have more friends there than we've ever had in our lives. There's something about um, living in a place, first of all, uh, Buenos Aires is a very creative place and uh, there are people really coming there from all over the world who are screenwriters, uh, artists, uh, all different kinds of creative types, and lots of entrepreneurial type people too. And there's very much a sense of collaboration. We all, you know, it's a relatively small, manageable community of expats that we get together with and uh, share ideas. And some people partner on business ventures and all kinds of things. It's extremely stimulating and very, very social, largely because we have a lot of time. Almost everyone there is working virtually in some way or working on their own and making a choice to live differently. They don't have nine to five jobs for the most part. And so there's more time to talk and have four hour dinners and <laughs> four hour coffees and that type of thing. Um, it's a fantastic lifestyle as far as that goes. And uh, we, we're thriving there. I mean, we're, we're very, very happy uh, in terms of our social lives there in terms of uh, the relationships we have with our Argentine neighbors. And we live in an area where there, there really are very, very few foreigners. We're you know, certainly not surrounded by any stretch of the imagination. You have to walk away to find another foreigner. Um, and we love that part too. What's the time uh, zone in Buenos Aires? Am I thinking it's maybe an hour later than Eastern? Yes, that's correct. And it changes a little depending on daylight savings time, but yes. Okay, one very interesting question here. Um, and I'm sorry, I've lost it. Give me a second. Was there anything that you would do, was there anything you would not do if the chance presented itself again? Was there anything you did that you wish you hadn't done? Huh. Well, I'll tell you this. We learned a lot about education um, with each of the daughters because they, they tried different things. So, for example, um, our third daughter had to finish high school online, and she was somewhat frustrated by some of the courses that she had to take online when she would have much 
rather taken more interesting courses online that were, you know, college level. She really didn't want to take some of the ones that were required to, to earn her Oregon diploma. That was a frustration. And by the time we got to the youngest daughter, she ended up getting her GED at 16 and enrolling directly in college, and that was fantastic for her. And um, I wish we had known about that option or at least been more willing to accept it. Uh, you know, we've been broken down a lot, so we're, we're much more open to options now that we would not have considered probably with the oldest daughter. Um, but we're learning as we go, and, and I think that um, we've, we've been able to uh, really expand and understand a lot more about the options available. So uh, we've got about five minutes to go before we wrap up. Uh, this one, I think, maybe represents uh, a concern that you probably have heard, and I'd be interested in hearing how you address. Sal asks, I think you have a wonderful lifestyle that's very interesting. I think it works well for you, but I can't see it for the masses. One area of concern I see is stability. Um, how, do you feel like this could be done on a larger scale? Could you have mass customization with globalization? Can you actually uh, envision that? Well, I think it's very difficult for most people in the States to envision that, but if you live abroad, you already see it all around you. You see families from all over the world living there. You see people coming and going and starting businesses, and, and it doesn't seem uh, like an impossible thing. So it's not that much of a stretch of the imagination for me, but I do understand that the vast majority of Americans are not likely to do what we did, but um, we're not suggesting that they do. We're simply suggesting that they consider all of the education options available to their kids here in the States and abroad and look at ways that they can put them together in interesting ways that allow their kids to pursue the interests that they have and to, and to really have an invigorating education. So I've got uh, that question, and please, if you've got any more questions, I, I do have a couple more from the chat, although I'm not sure quite how to fit them in. But I'm interested in whether or not you think this is a movement, or is this just the great story of unique people, and there have always been unique people who have done this? Do you feel like there's a growing trend here? I absolutely feel that way. and. Um and the numbers bear it out. I mean, when there's such an influx, just I, I can't compare, you know, talk about other cities around the world, but I know for a fact that there's a huge influx of expats in into Buenos Aires right now in the last year or so, and um, and this is happening in most of the large cities around the world. And some of it is because there are companies abroad that they're going to work for, but you know that's the old model of the expat family of being transferred from the home office in the states, and that's really um, in decline because more and more companies abroad, if they do want American employees, they figured out that they can hire them right there wherever they are around the world because. Americans are especially single ones that are cheaper to employ because they don't have to have their families moved and their education costs paid for are a much better deal for corporations. And so we're seeing that um, in a huge way. Okay, so I'm going to make this the final question. There were three or four that I'm not sure that we got to fully. If you didn't feel like we addressed your question, I'm going to put a link in the chat here and let you know that you can go and add that. Um, and maybe uh, Tom and Maya would check back in a week or so and see what questions are there and, uh, and look. And if any pop up, I'll try and remind them. I also want to make sure that I put some links in here uh, so that you can find out more about uh, the book and what they're doing. So mayafrost.com is that link, and newglobalstudent.com. 
Okay, so this this question is sort of the test of your experience. What do you hope your daughters? How do you hope your daughters will educate their children? I hope that our girls will bring the same sort of sense of adventure to the education of their children that we were fortunate enough to develop by spending time abroad and doing things the way we did. Um, it turns out that education doesn't have to be a long, hard slog, that the junior and senior years of high schools don't have to be miserable uh, in terms of test prep and stress and worry about getting into college. We completely skipped all of that, and uh, more and more students are figuring out how to do that. And uh, I, I know that they'll bring their sense of the world and their sense of expanded, vastly expanded possibilities wherever they go. Okay, that's a great note on which to finish. I've placed the evaluation for tonight's show up in a web tour. I'll also put the link in the chat if you want to fill it online off of the uh, outside of this environment. Uh, let's give a clap for Tom and Maya. That's that clapping hand at the bottom of your participant window. Thanks, uh, Tom and Maya, for coming on tonight, for taking time uh, while you're in New York. Thanks to those of you who've joined us. Our thanks to uh, KnowledgeWorks and Illuminate for supporting the series. Coming up uh, soon, John Seeley Brown, David Thornburg, and a series on virtual schools. So one final clap. Any final words, Tom or Maya? Uh, I'm just really grateful to have a chance to share our story with all of you. Thank you for listening. Yes, thanks for having us on. Really appreciated it. Well, that was great. Oh, and let, uh, why don't I pull up the uh, Amazon link while, the, while we're sitting here finishing up. If you're finishing up the survey, please do so. Uh, Tom and Maya, you're, certainly we really appreciate the time and you probably have to go. It's uh, later in New York. Uh, but those of you who are sticking around in the chat for a little bit, I'll put up the link to the book uh, from Amazon so that you have it if you want to see it. I, uh, I didn't read all of it, but I spent a good amount of time with it today and really enjoyed it. A uh, wonderful uh, read. So thanks for attending. Thank you, Steve. Is there a book tour? Someone's asking. Um, Cheryl Shell is asking if there's a link to a book tour. Uh, there is a link on our site. If you go to the, um, I think it's the Tips for Parents link on the sidebar on the left-hand side. It will include some updates on uh, where we are and what we're doing. We're in New York right now for another couple of weeks, and then we'll be doing uh, the West Coast in most of uh, the the last part of July and August. Where will you go when you're in the West Coast? Well, partly because we have um, you know, friends in the area. We'll be spending some time in Portland, in Seattle, uh, in smaller towns in the areas. We're probably going to be in the Bay Area, perhaps LA. We're, we're kind of open at this point. But um, we're, we're kind of seeing where this leads us. We're just having a good time with it right now. Well, feel free to come uh, to the Hargadons in Sacramento area. If you're in this area, we'd love to host you. Oh, we would love to do that. <laughs> what are they? What's that site where you can stay on people's couches, couch surfing or something? Uh, couch surfing. <laughs> yes. We'll we'll be your we'll be your couch surfing home. That sounds perfect. Although you'll have to put up with us uh, calling you if we go to Buenos Aires. <laughs> That's a fair deal.
Okay, if there's anybody who hasn't finished the survey, let me know. In order for the recording to process, I actually have to, to close the room out. I'm going to turn the recording off right now.